Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week, I have a different guest discussing the apostolates which they founded, the ministry that they have in the Church, their music, their art, their literature. Today, my guest is Joseph Pierce, my friend and fellow Anglo-American. Joseph is the author of many books, a well-known biographer. He lectures on Tolkien, Lewis, Shakespeare, all over the world, and he's my guest here today to discuss the English martyrs. Joseph, welcome to More Christianity. It's very good to be here. One of the things you know, Joseph, when I lived in England, which I became more and more interested in as I made my own journey to the Catholic faith, was the witness of the English martyrs, those courageous men and women from many ages in England, but especially in the Elizabethan age, who gave their lives for the faith. When was it that you first became interested in and knowledgeable about the martyrs yourself? Well, I originally got interested in Catholicism because of uh, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. And of course, they did a lot of writing about the history of England and particularly about the history of the English Reformation, the so-called Reformation in England. And so I, I became aware of the English martyrs through reading them. And then as I became a Catholic, my devotion to the English martyrs grew uh, in consequence, of course. I was coming to the Catholic faith as an Anglican priest, a minister in the Church of England, And an important part of that journey for me was to actually understand the history of the Catholic Church in England. And as an Anglican, there was a kind of alternative mythology about Christianity in England, and it went along these lines. They said that there was actually in England this Celtic church, a church that was separated and cut off from the Roman church, and that for 500 years or even 1,000 years, the first Christians were these the Celtic peoples, the people who ended up in Wales and in and in Cornwall and in and in Ireland, and they followed this pure apostolic Catholic faith. And then only around the invasion, as they called it, of Saint Augustine, we would call it the mission of Saint Augustine, uh, sent by Saint Gregory the Great. Around the beginning of the six hundreds, did Christianity finally become Roman Catholic? And the Anglicans liked to see themselves as the inheritors of this pre-Augustine kind of ancient Celtic mythology. What do you think of that theory? Well, bizarre, weird, and unhistorical, for starters. I mean, the first English martyr was St. Alban, who was uh, martyred during the Roman early early days of the Roman occupation in the, the Roman city of Verulanium, which is now called St. Alban's after St. Alban, the first martyr. So, you know, the first martyrs were Roman literally Roman, Roman citizens, as St. Alban was. And of course, the, the irony of the bizarre thing is all of the Anglican churches were all built in consequence of St. Augustine's mission to the country. It was all Anglo-Saxon, then Norman. So it's just a bizarre invention of a history that never was, basically. The archaeology from the time of what they call Romano-Celtic Britain is very interesting. For those who are interested in the history, it was the Emperor Claudius from the famous TV show I, Claudius, who was the uncle of Caligula, He's the one who actually was the emperor during the invasion of Britain at the, in the second half of the first century. And of course, therefore, uh, Christianity was growing at the time. And the first Christians in Britain were Roman slaves, Roman soldiers who were there as part of the Roman occupation. So uh, the idea that there was any Christianity or Catholicism that was not Roman is, is bizarre. The other uh, great missionary to the Irish, of course, is St. Patrick. Patrick himself was brought up in a home that was firmly Roman Catholic, not Celtic Catholic or Coptic Catholic or anything else. And it was his mission to Ireland, which was rooted in, in the history of the, uh, of the Roman Church. So 
right back to those early days, we see a Roman form of Christian of Catholicism, no other form. Absolutely. I mean, there was, of course, uh, the the northern Christians, and the only thing that was different there was the dating of Easter and and those sort of customs. And it was, of course, very early on during Anglo-Saxon times that the the two branches of Christianity in England, the Christianity in the south and the Christianity in the north and west, based in Iona and Lindisfarne in the northeast, at the Council of Whitby, they um, buried their differences and became one. The idea of this mythic Celtic church sort of has something to do with St. Joseph of Arimathea bringing Christ to England uh, uh, and rooted in Devon and Cornwall and that, that. That's just mythic in the bad sense of the word, as in made up. Well, Joseph, I'm going to hit you over the head a little bit here as an American saying, you English, you're really kind of fond of those beautiful ideas, aren't you? Those misinterpretations of history, shall we say? It's like good Queen Bess. Uh, In your writings, you refer to her as bloody Bess. Well, these beautiful ideas have to be based upon good, solid, factual evidence. And uh, to call a murderess uh, and a butcher, which uh, bloody Bess was, good Queen Bess, takes an element of historical perversion we can have catalogued the numerous people put to death on her orders, not least of all, of course, were the English martyrs, many of which were put to not just death, but brutal, torturous death, hanging and drawing quarterings, almost we don't want to talk about because it's so gruesome. And she follows on, of course, from her father, Henry VIII, who Englishmen like to portray as a good, stout, beef-eating, hearty, knee-slapping kind of Englishman. Ho, ho, you know, a bit of a lad with the ladies. You know, he had all those wives, and but wasn't he a great old chap? And in fact, uh, he, he was from the line of, of a violent, violent family who took the English throne through violent and bloody wars and himself was um, one of the world's great tyrants, was he not? Absolutely. And of course, we need to remember that the English Reformation is is the product of Henry VIII's rebellion against Rome because he can't get his own way about his marriage. It's nothing to do with theology. I mean, it's very different from the Reformation in Europe where you you had the ideas of Luther and Calvin. This is basically about the will of a king who who is spoiled, who's used to getting his own way. And uh, when he's tired of one queen, he wants another one, of course, and then another one and another one, including, of course, trumping up charges against some of them and having them beheaded. If this is acceptable behavior in any civilized environment, then obviously we, we don't know what civilization is. What is the knack then of the English for whitewashing their history in such a, a remarkable way and reinventing? Does every nation do this to a greater or lesser extent, or are the English particularly good at it? <laughs> or bad at it, depending upon your point of view. <laughs> well, of course, it is true that the history is subjective to the extent that it's written by the victors. And that's why a good historian needs to cut through that uh, propaganda and that deliberate misreading and get to the facts of the matter, which is what good historians have done as regards English history. But for many years, history was written by the victors, so-called Whig history, what uh, Hilaire Belloc called that Tom Fall Protestant history, which basically completely fabricated the facts of the Reformation. For instance, the 40 canonized martyrs, of England, the Catholic martyrs, the 85 beatified martyrs, the numerous others who have not been officially recognized by the church are all literally whitewashed out of history. So the the Englishmen were brought up to not, not even know that those people existed. Joseph Pierce is my guest today on More Christianity. He's the biographer of Tolkien, Lewis, Chesterton, Solzhenitsyn, also increasingly a noted Shakespeare scholar and biographer. We're going to talk in a moment about Shakespeare and his identity as perhaps a secret Catholic. And the English martyrs, I'd like to invite you, though, to get more information about a special pilgrimage that Joseph and I will be leading together June 2015. Joseph and I will be leading a group of pilgrims on a tour of England 
focusing on the English martyrs and on literary converts. We invite you to get in touch with us to find more about that. You can do so through my blog or through my website, DwightLongenecker.com. Connect to the contact page and we'll send you information on this exciting tour with me and Joseph Pierce. Joseph, can you set for us the stage in this violent and turbulent time period just after Henry VIII and merging into the reign of Elizabeth I? Well, from the 1530s, when Henry VIII basically declares himself head of the church in England, right through to the 1680s, 150 years later, hundreds of Catholics were put to death for their faith, particularly priests. As I say, we have 40 canonized and 85 beatified martyrs, but many more who have not been officially recognized by the church who were put to death. Many thousands more were fined very heavily for their Catholicism. They were what were known as the recusants. Shakespeare's own family was a recusant family. In other words, a family of defiant Catholics who were fined for their Catholicism in these very anti-Catholic times. So when you say families were fined for their Catholicism, under Henry VIII, and then for a short time there was Mary Tudor who was Catholic and returned the country to the Catholic faith, and then it was her half-sister, Elizabeth I. So under Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, you're saying every person in the whole country had to belong to the state church, the Anglican church. It was law that you had to attend Anglican services a certain amount of times a year, and if failure to do so meant, meant being fined. So you had to conform to the state church. Did they take attendance? Yes. So they took attendance. If you didn't go to church, you were fined. What if you continued to resist and uh, say you were Catholic and said, sorry, I'm not going to the state church and you can't make me? What what happened next? Well, basically, for the laity, generally speaking, they were just fined increasingly and many of them were were economically crippled by that fining. If you were involved in any sort of uh, Catholic activity beyond the mere, if you like, sin of omission by refusing to attend Anglican services, you faced imprisonment. And if you were reckless enough to harbour a Catholic priest, you faced execution, as uh, fitness and St. Margaret Clitheroe did in, in, in York for, for harbouring Catholic priests. It was punishable by death. So to be a Catholic priest in England under the reign of Elizabeth was an instant death sentence. Absolutely, punishable and, by death, yeah. And to harbour or to shield a, a hide a Catholic priest, was that automatic death or, as well? Also carried a death sentence for treason, so-called treason. And so under the reign of, of Elizabeth I, there was a kind of police state in England. Uh, when I read about the, the circumstances there, we're talking about the sort of thing we, we experienced in communist Eastern Bloc countries where there were a network of spies, there was surveillance, there was continual vigilance. Tell us a bit more about that. In many ways, you know, Elizabethan England and Jacobean England that followed it, we shouldn't let uh, King James I off the hook either, were what we would now call totalitarian states. Uh, not de jure, not in law, but de facto, in fact, secular fundamentalist states, because really it was about the worldly getting on and those who were sticking to their religious principles, whether they be Catholics or or, or nonconformists, Puritans, were persecuted ruthlessly. Fines, imprisonment, and of course many were forced through this persecution to go into exile, which is why many of them ended up over here. One of the intriguing things about this time period was the the sense of it being not only a police state, but a whole network of spies and counter-spies where people would be pretending to be Catholics and even pretending to be Catholic priests in order to go to the seminaries and get the names and record and, and betray their fellow Catholics. This was the time period, of course, when the Jesuits were especially heroic. They went over to Europe to train, and they came back to England, some of them knowing that it was almost inevitable that they were coming to their deaths. Who were some of those notable figures? Well, probably the two most famous Jesuit saints were uh, St. Edmund Campion, and then a bit later, St. Robert Southwell, who was almost certainly an acquaintance of William Shakespeare himself. 
And so these two priests came back and were eventually captured, tortured, and martyred. The heroism of the people that looked after these priests as well is always astounding to me. You mentioned St. Margaret Clitheroe. She was an ordinary housewife in the city of York who hid Catholic priests. She was caught and she was sentenced to be crushed to death. I believe that she was actually pregnant at the time. It was said that she was pregnant at the time. I don't know if that if that has been or can be verified. Certainly pious legend is that she was pregnant at the time. She was certainly the mother of several children and was crushed to death. That was seen to be a lenient punishment because she was a woman to be crushed to death instead of being hanged, drawn, and quartered, which would have been the usual punishment for a man. And so St. Margaret Clitheroe crushed to death, a door put on top of her, and then gradually weights being added until she was crushed. It's also said that as she was marching off to her public place of execution, that she gave a pair of shoes to one of her daughters and said, follow in my footsteps. It's those little details that come down to us from this time period of heroic men and women, ordinary men and women, who were willing to give up everything for their faith, which is so moving. At the same time, I believe the story is true that St. Margaret Clitheroe's husband conformed to the state religion and, and did not go along. So the verse in the scriptures, therefore, where Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, and families will be divided, mothers from daughters and husbands and wives, and it comes true. It, it reminds me of Pope Benedict's line that scripture is interpreted through the lives of the saints. And when you read the lives of the saints, like these, these martyrs, you actually see the scriptures themselves coming true. There's St. Margaret Clitheroe, who's separated from her husband because she's going to stand up for the faith, even to the point of death, when her husband decides not to. What are some of the other stories of those who uh, helped the priest? There are stories of absolute brutality. For instance, Sir Richard Topcliffe, who was Elizabeth's chief torturer, raped repeatedly Anne Bellamy to get information from her about the whereabouts of St. Robert Southwell. That sort of sordid underbelly of, of the Elizabethan regime, which we should not forget, but also the lives of the saints and the martyrs particularly are love in action because Christ tells us that to love is to lay down our lives for our friends. When we see the witness of the martyrs, the martyrs from whether it be the early church or, or, or Elizabethan or Jacobean England, it's a witness to us of, of true love, those that prepared for the love of Christ and for the love of neighbor and indeed for the love of enemy because many of them made speeches forgiving their enemies from the scaffolds as they were about to be hanged, drawn and quartered. It's a witness to love, and it's, the lo it's that love which ultimately, ultimately transforms the world. Joseph Pierce is my guest today on More Christianity. Joseph and I will be leading a tour to England June 2015. If you would like to join us, go to my website, dwightlongenecker.com. Be in contact, and we'll send you more information. We'll be visiting the sites of the literary converts and the English martyrs. As we travel around, Joseph and I will be lecturing. We're going to have a fantastic time, and we invite you to join us. One of my favorite stories from the English martyrs is the story of St. Nicholas Owen. Uh, Nicholas Owen was a lay Jesuit. Uh, he was a dwarf. He came from a family of carpenters and builders in Oxford. And it was his job to go around and create priest holes. Tell our listeners what a priest hole is. Well, a priest hole is basically a place built into a, a, someone's home where a priest can hide. And of course, it's really ingenious because they have to be able to escape uh, efforts by the, by the regime to discover them. Actually, on our pilgrimage, we're going to be visiting one of the, one of the finest priest holes in the whole of, whole of England at Oxford Hall in Norfolk, which is actually under the floor in one of the upstairs rooms. And you, you can actually, uh, and I, I intend to do it, I don't think I'm too old to do this, to actually crawl down un, under the floor into this priest hole and then you really get a feel 
for these pre-soldiers. But Nicholas Owen, of course, built many of these. He was a master, master carpenter, master craftsman. And it's, you know, there's something romantic, something Scarlet Pimpernel-ish about it. Yes, and uh, in these historic houses in England, as you say, you can still find them. It would be a false wall in a fireplace, for instance. They would put in a false back to the fireplace and the priest would slip in a secret doorway and, and hide behind the fireplace. I, I can remember reading one about uh, a priest hole that was hidden within a latrine. It was a very smelly place to hide, but not one that they would go and find the priest. Others where they were built into secret compartments behind paneling in a room or, as you say, under the floor, under the staircase. Well, as you say, that on our pilgrimage, apart from the one I mentioned at Oxborough Hall, we'll also be seeing another one at West Grinstead, uh, a lady of constellation in West Grinstead in Sussex, which is also the uh, the place where Hilaire Belloc and other literary converts are, are buried. So a very exciting pilgrimage, visiting these places. It's going to be a joy to be there with you, to basically follow in the footsteps of these great English saints and martyrs. And St. Nicholas Owen was actually captured and tortured by Topcliffe, the, the uh, Queen's torture that you mentioned. He escaped and went back to building more priest holes and captured a second time and then finally martyred for the faith. Then there's, of course, uh, St. Cuthbert Maine. He's one of the first Anglican convert priests. You know, we look to him as one of our role models. He was ordained as an Anglican priest, converted to the Catholic faith, came back to minister in England and was caught and hung, drawn, and quartered in the West Country. These heroes of the faith in England remind us that this is always relevant today. You know, in the 20th century, there were more English martyrs put together than in all the previous centuries, and it continues today, looking at the problems in the Middle East and Syria and northern Iraq, uh, in Africa, where Christians are being killed just for being Christians. What do you think it has to say, Joseph, for the situation in our country, in the United States? Well, Christ said, you know, that uh, that if they've hated me, they will hate you. And the history of the church has always been uh, one in which it's the church militant. We forget that. You know, the church is the church triumphant in heaven, the church suffering in purgatory. But the church that we're part of here on earth is the church militant, which is the church struggling, the church as soldiers, the church at war, and the church is at war with the world. It always has been. And more to the point, of course, the world is always at war with the church. So the whole history of the church basically is uh, an oscillation between periods when the world is persecuting the church, which are normally times of great rebirth and renewal and resurrection on the part of the church, and periods where the, the world and the church get too close together. And then, and then you get periods where comfort leads to corruption. In many ways, although it's very much easier to say this than to live it out, we should be pleased that we're living at a time now where, where the world is showing its true colors in its hatred of Christ and his church, because that will be a period of renewal and rebirth for Catholicism, but, you know, maybe a bloody one and uh, not easy for us to think about it and probably much harder for us to live through it. But really, it is a blessing. And to be Christians is to lay down our lives for Christ and for his church and for our friends and for our enemies. And we talk about it all the time. And we may we may be blessed enough to have to do it at some point. As Tertullian said, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and through the persecution, renewal comes. We only have a few minutes left. Joseph, you've set the stage for us. We can envision Elizabethan England as a time where England was actually under the totalitarian rule of the brutal dictator Elizabeth I, who made it a, a capital crime to be a Catholic priest or to shield a Catholic priest. There was a network of spies. There was a, an underground of recusant Catholicism, uh, those who were keeping the faith. It, it was an intriguing and exciting and a terrible time to be a Catholic. Now, the greatest English writer is, of course, William Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is writing and living during this time period. And you've written very well about the possibility that Shakespeare is a secret Catholic in all of this. 
how does that fit into the whole picture? What, what, why do you have such a theory and what, what does that mean? Well, over a period of time, I was presented with an increasing amount of evidence to show that Shakespeare was a Catholic. And so my book, my first book on, on this issue, The Quest for Shakespeare, lays out the enormous amount of biographical evidence and historical evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism. From the fact he's brought up in a recusant family to his activities in London during the time he's writing the plays, through the evidence in the plays themselves. I mean, he probably met St. Edmund Campion when he was a young man. He almost certainly knew St. Robert Southwell very well. He went to school with another Jesuit martyr. So, you know, living in very, very perilous times, very treacherous times, and this plays itself out in his plays. You know, the anger against the spies in Hamlet, for instance, the anger against the spy master Polonius in Hamlet, the anger against the corrupt king who employs spy masters, King Claudius in Hamlet. I could give you other examples, Macbeth, King Lear, we could go on, but there's an abundance of evidence to show Shakespeare was a believing Catholic in very anti-Catholic times. All Shakespeare scholars would say, well, Shakespeare's plays are written in a Catholic atmosphere, in a world that is still Catholic in its mentality and viewpoint. In that sense, Shakespeare's plays are Catholic. But you, like some other scholars, would go further and say, not only do they exist in a Catholic world with a Catholic mentality, but Shakespeare is actually writing subversive literature. I think it was Claire Asquith, this first dawned on her when she was in Russia and went to a, a performance of a play and the audience was obviously reading it in a totally different way than the script said because they understood that it was a secretly subversive play. And she said Shakespeare's plays, she theorized, were also subversive literature in the midst of a totalitarian regime. Is that your understanding? Absolutely. If people really want to understand the way that Shakespeare was working in Elizabethan and Jacobean England, they need to just look at the way that uh, writers were, were working in the Soviet Union in the 1960s, the 1970s. If you want to go to the other end of the spectrum, the way that uh, socialist writers were writing under Franco in Spain in the 60s and 70s. You can't criticize the government outright. So you have to find some subversive subtextual subplot way of doing it. And that's what they did in the Soviet Union. That's what they did in Franco Spain. That's what they did in Elizabethan England. So the subtext is carried by the way the actors perform, by some of the things happening on stage visually, which are never going to be put into writing, uh, as well as certain codes and certain secret signs, if you like, that the whole audience would understand, inside jokes, if you like. And also set in plays such as Macbeth, which is a Scottish play about a Scottish king who's corrupt and Machiavellian. And you don't mention King James once, but the parallels with King James will be palpable to anybody living at the time. Right. And so everybody would have understood, here's King James, the Scottish king, who's behaving just like this fellow we see up on the stage. Right, exactly. And, and so, uh, and you of course, know, King James isn't mentioned, so he, uh, Shakespeare can't be arrested for writing a play about a Scottish king who died hundreds of years ago. But the parallels with the present day Scottish king are palpable for everyone so to see. So connect the dots. Exactly. Right. And this therefore brings a whole new level of intrigue in, into the Shakespeare story because now we see him functioning as a secret Catholic, writing in code, looking over his shoulder probably every minute. Is there a spy going to be here in, in my circle of friends? Are there some spies right here who are watching me the whole time? We also know that William Byrd, uh, the composer at the same time period, was a, a Catholic and Elizabeth sort of overlooked his Catholic faith, maybe the same thing with Shakespeare. Well, that's my position, actually. My position is more that Shakespeare is a safe Catholic, one that the Elizabeth and, and James don't believe is a personal threat to them, uh, in the same way that William Byrd was not seen as a personal threat. William Byrd was a recusant Catholic, so was his wife. They were fined for their recusancy. And in the end, the Queen's Attorney General, basically the chief lawyer in the whole country, 
ordered the local authorities to leave William Byrd alone because the Queen liked him, even though he was a Catholic. There were many Catholics in Queen Elizabeth's court. It's a complex scenario. The point is that there were so many Catholics in England. The other, the other error we have to avoid is the idea that there were very few Catholics. They were sort of 1% of the population. Now, there were very large portions of the population, as was seen after Queen Elizabeth I died. Uh, the number of people that wanted to go back to mass was huge. So they were everywhere, and people knew who they were. The, the point was the law made it imperative that you didn't talk about it. So, you know, the people knew you were Catholic, and as long as you didn't talk about it in public and you didn't act in, in a, such a way such as such as uh, hiding priests, you were you were left in peace. And that, 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 that was the scenario. So Shakespeare was left in peace as long as he was not perceived as being a personal threat to the king or queen. And, of course, an awful lot of the Catholics during this terrible time were probably holding their breath, keeping their fingers crossed, saying, Elizabeth can't last that much longer. Mary, Queen of Scots, will take her place. She was Catholic, uh, or another Catholic monarch will come in, and it'll be, we'll all be Catholic again. It won't last that long. After all, after Henry VIII, there was his daughter Mary. She took us back to the Catholic faith. If we just keep treading water here for a bit, uh, you know, she'll die, and then we'll get a Catholic monarch again. This was exactly the psychological position of, of the Catholics, particularly as Queen Elizabeth got older. All they had to do was wait because King James I was the son of uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Catholic. Although James was himself brought up as a Protestant, he was married to a Catholic and had promised the Catholics that he would basically uh, get rid of the anti-Catholic laws when he became king. Uh, and so when Queen Elizabeth died, there was this huge uh, sense of elation on the part of the Catholics. Many of them st started refusing to go to Anglican Church. Uh, many of them started to go back to Mass and practice the sac sacraments. And then Parliament, which was by this time already become very puritanical, panicked and basically put pressure on the king to uh, come back, to reintroduce all, all, all the same laws as under Elizabeth. And the king being new to the throne, not wanting to upset Parliament, who were very powerful and becoming more powerful, basically caved into the demands of Parliament. And then, of course, then, then the psychological impact on the Catholics was, on oh my word, we're going to have a young king who could be around for another 30 years and it's going to be the same as we had under Elizabeth. And that, and that, that sense of desolation we see in the, the plays that Shakespeare wrote at that time, his darkest plays, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, were all written at this time when the persecution was reintroduced after a brief period of about a year of freedom. Today, my guest on More Christianity is Joseph Pierce, biographer, Shakespeare scholar. Joseph, thank you for being with us today and sharing such an intriguing viewpoint on the history of the Catholic faith in England. My pleasure as always, Father.